When you think about these increases, you think about the 1970s and the terrible stagflation that there was then. We do not think uh, that this time these increases will uh, derail the recovery. Planet Money. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm Robert Smith. Today is Tuesday, April 12th, and that was the chief economist of the International Monetary Fund, Olivier Blanchard. You heard him at the top talking about the rise in oil prices. Robert, today, a special podcast. My name is Ricky Ross. I'm known on the streets as Freeway Rick. But when I sold drugs, if they'd have told me they was going to legalize it, I'd have been mad because I knew that that was going to drive the price down. We are going to spend a half an hour with Freeway Rick, one of the biggest drug dealers in L.A. during the 80s and 90s. And today he comes on our program to discuss what else? The economics of illegal drugs. And there's this huge economic literature about the unintended consequences of making drugs illegal. But today we're going to run all those academic theories by Freeway Rick, a different kind of expert. Admittedly. But first, the Planet Money Indicator. Jacob Goldstein, take it away. Today's Planet Money Indicator is $1 billion. China ran a trade deficit. Yes, Alex, I said it. China ran a trade deficit. You're blowing my mind. Of about $1 billion in the first three months of this year. In other words, China imported more than it exported. Of course, a billion dollars, this is really a trivial amount of money in the scheme of China's trade. But still, you know, China's imports and exports were basically balanced for the first three months of this year. And that's that's a pretty big deal. Right. If it was any other country other than China, we wouldn't be reporting this. But this is a huge, huge story. You're actually, you are blowing my mind because... You know, the story that we've always been telling about global trade is that China always runs a trade surplus. In other words, they sell more to the rest of the world than they buy from the rest of the world, and that the U.S. is the one who buys from the world and doesn't sell as much as they buy. Right. So these are the global imbalances. We're always talking about these imbalances that economists say are basically unsustainable in the long run and that make the global economy unstable. Right. And so is that better now? <laughs> no. The short answer is no, it's not, it's not better now. It's, it's less bad. I mean, the thing is, there are some big caveats for what happened with China's trade during the first three months of this year. One is there was Chinese New Year, and Chinese New Year is a time when China largely just shuts down. So obviously, a country shuts down. They're, they're not exporting as much during that period of time. Another big piece of this is that commodity prices went way up. Uh, China imports a ton of oil and iron. And so these imports, they got more expensive. It's not like suddenly China transformed itself and everybody went to the mall and started buying imports. So for the whole year, China will probably still run a trade surplus, like always. But still, big picture, definitely you see movement in the right direction. China's imports are growing faster than its exports. So it is moving toward balance. Thanks very much, Jacob. Thanks. All right. So, Robert, we have in front of us a pile of academic papers, and all of them arrive at a surprising conclusion. The conclusion is this. When you make drugs illegal, you end up making drug dealers richer and you increase the overall level of crime. And you don't end up reducing drug use by that much, which we should remind people is the whole point of making drugs illegal, to stop people from using drugs and to lower the amount of crime. So here we have these policies that are not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And let's lay out the theory of why that is. Okay, so the the economics of this are when you make something illegal, you make it harder and riskier to produce. In the case of drugs, you have to sneak them across the border. You have to pay people more to transport them since they're facing jail time. You have to hire armed guards to, you know, protect your supply. There's all of these added costs, which simply drives up the price. So illegal cocaine 
is many more times expensive than it would be if it were legal. And any economist can tell you what happens next. When the price of something goes up, surprise, fewer people buy it. Take bananas. If they were 500 bucks a bunch, no one would buy bananas. But crack is different. The demand is what they call inelastic. No matter what it costs, people are willing to pay for it. I mean, it's addictive. So increasing the price just means that more money goes to drug dealers. And to the criminal behavior they engage in. Bribing people, buying guns, threatening, hurting, or even killing people. That is the theory. But one thing missing from these economic papers, actual drug dealers. And this brings us to Freeway Ricky Ross. He started dealing cocaine in 1979, then he moved into crack, then he worked his way up to becoming one of the biggest crack dealers in L.A. He was arrested in 1996 and given a life sentence. But in 2009, he was given parole and released. And we thought, here is a perfect person to run these economic theories by and see if they check out. Let's do it. Theory number one, making drugs illegal drives up the price. Check. The most I ever made in one day was $3 million. Went through my hands. Wow. I could make off of a million bucks. I could make anywhere from 400000 to 200000 profit. It varied to who I was selling to and uh, uh, what time of the month it was. You know, a lot of variables on how much I made. If I was giving it to them on credit, stuff like that. So, But I was sure to make 200000 off of every million, and sometimes I could make as much as 400000 Let me just ask you, like, how how much of the cost of the drug that you were selling was because it was illegal, I guess. Probably, ooh, we maybe a thousand times. Uh, you can probably get a kilo of cocaine over in uh, uh, Colombia, Peru for maybe $300. Or maybe even less than that, you know, if it wasn't illegal. Because maybe the farmers probably would sell it for, for uh, what it costs for a head of lettuce because it grows over there, you know, wow. So... I mean, the price probably would drop dramatically. You probably could get a kilo for what it costs about a pack of cigarettes. <laughs> Maybe cheaper. Keep in mind, Rick bought his kilos of cocaine for $10,000. All right. So next, we ran another part of the theory by him, that at least some of the money he's getting is going to increased crime. Again, check. Well, I had a crew. You know, I had a crew of anywhere from 30 to 40 guys. That varied, too, from... What was going on, you know, how, how good business was, uh, how many rock houses I was running at the time. You always had an appearance of toughness, uh-huh. and, and I did. You know, I had guys around me that were ruthless and were tough. You know, if I gave a word, they would hurt you. How, how, much, how, how many guns did your operation have? Who knows? <laughs> we bought guns regularly because guys would throw guns out the window when the cops get behind them, and, and we lose guns all the time. And it was mandatory uh, when 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 we were on the street. Like if we had to park playing basketball, we had to be strapped. Or if we had my uh, tire shop where we sold drugs from, then we would have guns there. Now, it's really amazing the level of expenses that a big-time drug dealer has. I mean, the drug money wouldn't just be for his crew. He would spread it around. I mean, his drug money would find its way into all sorts of other illicit activities in the neighborhood. For instance, he had money that he'd just distribute to the big players around the hood. You know, I had a fund also, you know, where where, where I take care of what's called the big homies. You know, uh, these are the guys that when I grew up were the shot callers, the guys that ran the neighborhood. And, and, you know, I took care of them. In my neighborhood, anybody uh, can get killed at any time. And for me to walk around the streets the way I did would be dangerous for a lot of people. Most people couldn't do what I did. You know, they couldn't walk around South Central Los Angeles in the middle of a Hoover, Crip Gang, or the Swans 
and live the way I live, you know, free and open, uh, going to car washes. You know, they kidnap drug dealers mm-hmm. in South Central. And uh, I had a special type of past that most people don't get, and that's because of my good ties that I shared in my wealth. So you basically, it was sort of like you were paying protection money to these people, right? Absolutely. You can call it protection money or big homie money or whatever, but it's all the same thing. Absolutely. But it was it was money going to people who who, who didn't sell drugs, but, but who would, they, who would they be were robbers? Yeah, they were robbers. They was killers, jackers as we call them. Absolutely, these guys didn't mind going to jail. So clearly, the academics are right here. Drug money goes to crime. I guess that's not a big surprise. But not all of the money goes to crime and bribes and shady stuff. For example, Freeway Rick Ross owned a lot of real estate, crack houses, cook houses, places he stored his money. There were other expenses, like a huge expense. Bail bondsmen, guys in his crew that he worked with would get picked up by the cops and he would need to make sure that they would stay loyal to him. So he would do whatever it took to get them out of jail. And of course, the criminal justice system knew that he was a big time drug dealer. So they set these bond prices really, really high. So that cost them a lot of money. Yeah. And another group of people who were profiting off of the big time drug dealer, lawyers. He had lots of lawyers and they charged him a lot of money. And they came into play when he would have these interesting disputes with the cops. What happened is they had raided a couple places and, and there were large amounts of money and no drugs. And uh, they would confiscate the money and then we would go to court and the lawyers would get the money back. And uh, that really frustrated them. Wait, so so they would they would raid one of your houses. There would be a whole bunch of money there, but there wouldn't be right. any drugs. Right. So you would go to the you would actually go go and say, I'm an honest businessman. That was my money. They have no right to take my money. Absolutely. Absolutely. I wouldn't go myself personally, no, of but course I had not. people. And the system set up to where we could claim the money. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, they found in a house in South Central. It's $400,000. Wouldn't that naturally, wouldn't you naturally think that's drug money? I mean, would you think that if it was Beverly Hills? True enough. True and enough. Then even if you think that, you have to prove it. You know, in court, it's not what you think. Uh, it's what you can prove. Right. And they couldn't prove that it was drug money, so you got it back. Absolutely. And they got frustrated with that. So what they started doing is they started, when they come into the house... They would bring their own drugs, and then they would plant drugs, and that makes it tougher for you to come to court and say, you know, Your Honor, I had $400,000 in here, and it's missing. <laughs> because now it was two keys in there, too. So now you got to tell the judge, Your Honor, the keys ain't mine, but the money is. <laughs> I think that's a, you know, a, hard, a hard pitch. So we have these quasi-legal expenses. I mean, the money's going to people who probably pay taxes on it, lawyers and bail bondsmen. But then there are the expenses that are sort of in between. You know, they're under the table. But on the face, there's nothing illegal about these expenses. You know, take all the cash that Ricky's making. Every business just deposits it in their account. Freeway Rick couldn't do that. Counting three, 400000 can be time-consuming. How did you count the money? Who did you, who did you get to count the money? Well, in the end, because uh, money became a chore, so I hired a couple girls, and that was their job, to count money all day. That's another cost of something being illegal. You have to hire people to count it, whereas if you just take it to a bank, you know. You... Absolutely. And then you got to worry about if they're stealing. Right. Because it's underground. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, if you, yeah, and you can't go and you can't file a claim against your, your underground drug money no. counters if you think no. they're skimming. So even though he's paying these women and they're not explicitly doing anything illegal, like just counting money isn't illegal, but there is also a social cost even here. In other words, these women are probably young, they're coming in, they're seeing this big-time drug dealer, they think this is the way to make money, going into drugs. And and that was, of course, also part of this, the social cost of what Rick was doing, aside from the fact that crack is incredibly you know, addictive, it decimated inner-city communities. 
creating the idea that like this is the only way out, this is the only way to get rich, that's also a big part of like the social cost of drug dealing. And we should say that as Rick is going through his internal dialogue about his his own costs, he did not bring up a lot about the fact that this did devastate cities and he was partially responsible for it. Right. Although now he says on his website that he's feels bad about that and he's trying to undo some of the damage that he caused. Now, there are a couple of the academic theories, the economist theories, though, that did not check out when we ran them by Freeway Rick. For example, there's this one theory you see cited a lot in the literature that one of the factors that drives up the cost of drugs, you have to compensate people for the risk, the risk of going to jail, the risk of getting shot or killed. So, you know, it's just generally people who have dangerous jobs tend to make more money. Miners, people who work on fishing boats, you know, those fishing boats out in Alaska, you need to pay them more since what they're doing is so risky. And the theory is that the same thing would apply to people in the drug trade. But that theory, at least in Rick's case, did not check out. Well, you know, uh, first of all, when when you come from where I I was when I started selling drugs, you know, you feel hopeless. Mm -hmm. Uh, You don't think you're going to live past 24 years old, uh, going to jail, come out with stripes. Really wasn't any risk. I mean, everything that I had going on at the time was nothing. You know, uh, I was like a, a lump on the log. So the risk that most people would look at, I mean, you know, you could get killed, uh, go to prison, was okay. Mm-hmm. So you didn't really think, you weren't thinking like, I'm taking a lot of risk here, I have to get compensated. No, no, I didn't really, I didn't really add. I mean, the compensation was all already enormous and overwhelming. I couldn't believe that it paid so well. You would have done it for a lot less is what you're saying. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Talking to Rick, we realized that there is something here that economists don't take into account. There was this emotional component to the work that Rick was doing. At least when you get to Rick's level, drug dealing is is complicated. It's multifaceted. It's engaging. Yeah. Like Rick was basically a CEO. He was a manager. He was a publicist. He was his own accountant. He was even the head chemist. He told us about something called the cook. This was the procedure when the raw cocaine was mixed with baking soda, of all things, and turned into crack. And this happened every single night. I usually would be running the cook. I would be the one who stir. Uh, I would be the one to tell when to add baking soda, when to add water, uh, when to take the pot off the stove. We had industrial-sized stoves that we cooked in, and we had these big pots that, uh, that they used in the penitentiary that we cooked the drugs in. And uh, we stirred it with a spoon that was big as a boat or... And uh, it was hot and steamy. You know, we was getting it in. Had bags of ice, a shopping cart full of uh, baking soda. We was just in there doing it. And where'd you get all the supplies? Where'd you get the stoves and where'd you get the Uh, We went just just regular stores. Uh Uh, Baking sodas, we would go to the supermarket. And, and, you know, that was one of the toughest times to get my guys to do. Nobody wanted to go buy baking soda because they felt like when they go in there and buy the whole shelf of baking soda that everybody knew what they was doing. (laughs) (laughs) And are you listening to music or playing the TV? What are you What are you doing while you're doing all this? Oh, no, we're not listening to any music. We're dead serious. Uh, we got to be in this house about two and a half, maybe three hours, and it was all business. And were, and were people armed? No, we weren't armed when we were in this house. Uh, uh-huh. This house was secret, so there was no need to be armed. We snuck in and we snuck out, uh, meaning that when we cooked, we usually start around two in the morning. Mm-hmm. So we would cook from like 2 to 5, 2 to 6 in the morning. So everybody in the neighborhood is asleep. Uh, nobody knows we're in their neighborhood. You know, the places we've cooked, neighbors never knew that we cooked there. 
So, Alex, let's just back up for a second here and look at this situation. Society was doing everything it possibly could to make Ricky Ross's life miserable. His product was illegal. His costs were enormous, as we've established. He was a hunted man. Literally a hunted man. He said there was a police task force in L.A. devoted entirely to putting him in prison. But despite all the money and the effort that the most powerful nation on earth was spending to make Rick Ross give up his job. I loved it. I felt like I was on top of the world. I felt I was powerful. I felt I'd came. I didn't have to answer to nobody. Uh, I mean, it was a dream. It was a, every man's dream to, to be free. Uh, do, do you miss it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, uh, I'd rather be doing that than, than anything else almost. Everything else became almost like secondary to my work. You know, it's funny. You were talking about how how great it was for a while, and one of the words you used was was the freedom of it. And yet, when you describe this in detail, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not hearing a lot of freedom. You had this task force, and people are out to kill you, and spotters, and you're sneaking around in the middle of the night. You have to be up at two thirty every morning. You're moving <laughs> houses back and forth. This didn't sound. This sounds like a man who has very little freedom in his life. Well, you know what? When you look at it from 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 that angle, it is. But when you look at it from where I came from, uh, then I felt like I had all the freedom in the world. How much of it was just sort of like the, the actual job and how much of it was just the feeling of being good at something and running this enterprise well? Do you well, think? you love the feeling of, of that you're good. So it didn't feel like it was a burden, you know, to, to sneak around at night. Uh, I've been sneaking around at night since I was, uh, uh, you know, 17 years old, still in cars, you know, uh, so... This it became. It's like when you saying you saying that it's it's not freedom, but from where I come from, this is a way of life. This is the way we live. It's nothing wrong with living like that, sneaking around at night, uh, hiding. You know, we've been hiding all our life. So, Robert, one question remains at the at the end of our journey here with the freeway, Rick. What does this all mean? I mean, are we saying we should be legalizing crack? I mean, if we really did want to make the freeway ricks of the world go away, we would take away their earning potential, I guess, right? Yeah, by legalizing drugs and dropping the price. And some of the economists we spoke to said, yeah, of course, making it illegal makes dealers richer, it creates more violence and crime, and doesn't do that much to drive down demand. So clearly, legalize it. Other economists, though, they weren't so sure. Peter Reuter has written a book about the illegal drug market. He's written many, many papers. He is a big expert in this field. And he says... Legalizing something like crack, there would definitely be trade-offs. Legalization would dramatically reduce crime. I mean, the, obviously, the, the drug market crime would disappear, and many drug-related crimes, where it's sort of, as the, in the business, economic compulsive uh, crimes, that is, crimes committed in order to pay for expensive illegal drugs, mm-hmm. that would go down a lot too. What goes on the other side? I'm making up the number here. Five million more persons addicted. That's a big number. How do we compare the bad outcomes in the two cases? A very large increase in addiction with a very large decrease in crime. I take them both to be real, but I don't know how. That's a value judgment. How do you? Which which is better? And which is which is better? Yeah, yeah, right. And as for Rick, when it comes to the legalization. It's complicated for him. A lot of the reason Rick says he got into drugs in the first place was because he was illiterate. And I mean, think about that. Everything we've just heard, he ran a multi-million dollar business empire without being able to read and write. He learned to read and write in prison. 
And his basic take is, and a lot of academics would agree with him, by the way, you need to attack the demand side of this equation. Try and reduce the reasons people want to use and sell crack in the first place. So that would mean addressing the desperation that drives people to become addicts or that drives them to become dealers. And that is Rick's new job. Since getting out of prison, he now travels around and talks to youth groups and schools, anybody who will have him, basically. And he lays out the other side of this economic equation that you're in when you're a drug dealer, which is it's hard to retire as a drug dealer. You get shot or you go to prison. And once you go to prison, everything you've made, all the money you've made, it's gone. A multi-million dollar business that you've spent years and years building, developing expertise in, it can all be gone in a second. There's a lot more about Freeway Rick that we didn't even get into in this podcast. For example, how he was caught by the police. And also, remember that whole Iran-Contra thing? It turns out Rick was buying his cocaine from the CIA. Amazing. We'll post links to the story about that and to Rick's new website, where he talks about his other ventures, including perhaps a Freeway Rick Ross movie. That's on our blog at npr.org. Please send us your thoughts, questions, comments to Planet Money at NPR. Check us out on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm Robert Smith. Thanks for listening. I don't come knocking on my door.